This week on WealthTrack, financial thought leader Jason Trenner details the seismic shifts occurring in the global economy and markets. Right now, when you have free money, a lot of things make sense. You can take risks that you ordinarily wouldn't. If long-term interest rates rise, that changes really everything uh, in terms of the way money is managed, what the expected returns are going to be, how active you should be. An interview with Strategas' chief investment strategist this week on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategas Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Talk about a seismic shift. Inflation is back with a vengeance. Higher prices are being felt throughout the economy by consumers and businesses alike. Household energy costs are up 10% versus a year ago. Groceries are 4.5% higher. Restaurant meals are nearly 5% more expensive. And the cost of rent and its equivalent is 3% higher. To put this into perspective, the Consumer Price Index, the most widely followed measure of price moves at the retail level, has just experienced its biggest year-over-year increase since the early 1990s. And at the most basic level, the index of combined prices of all tradable commodities, including aluminum and cattle, coffee and copper, gold and silver, gas and heating oil, recently traded at its highest level in decades. Are these price increases transitory, as the Federal Reserve would lead us to believe? Or are we in a new era of higher prices not seen since the late 1970s? Well, this week's guest penned an editorial in the Wall Street Journal recently asking the question, does the Fed have the will to fight inflation? He is financial thought leader Jason Trenert, co-founder, chairman, CEO, and chief investment strategist of Strategus Research Partners, a leading provider of economic market and policy research. Strategus has been voted a top macro research provider by institutional investors with five ranked analysts for four years in a row. It also provides asset management in separate accounts for institutions and high net worth individuals. Strategus is currently a WealthTrack sponsor, but Trenard has been tracking the winds of financial change for us since our launch in 2005. And we asked him to do so again today. My opening question is, are we in a new era of higher inflation, which would be a game changer for all of us? I think we are. I, I think that I, I think there tends to be a false choice that's made. I think when you talk to academic economists or, or Wall Street economists sometimes that uh, if it isn't like the 1970s, it doesn't really count. We're still in a low inflationary environment. And I, I think for average people and for investors, there's uh, a lot of space between one and a half to two percent inflation and the double digit inflation that we saw uh, in the 70s. And it seems to me, given the amount of, of monetary and fiscal stimulus that is in the system and will be coming through the system, that we have to be more accustomed to inflation that's more like three to four percent as opposed to one to two percent. Which is a huge in increase, Jason. I mean, that still is double from where we've been. And I might also add that, you know, we had James Grant on recently, who's a financial historian, uh, and you are certainly a student of the markets. And this is how it starts in the 60s. You know, it started gradually. We don't know yet. But for right now, you're saying that, you know, it looks like inflation could be doubling um, and, that, uh, and that essentially it's got some stickiness, right? I think so. And I think yeah. it, it really uh, is dependent upon the, um, 
the interest in, in reining inflation in, which I think, generally speaking, most administrations, Republican or Democrat, don't particularly like uh, hawkish feds. So nope. uh, I think the Fed is becoming somewhat more political now than it's become in quite some, t in quite some time. Um, and um, I think the policies that we've been that we've put in place are going to be very hard to reverse without a lot of pain. And so that's that's how inflation tends to build on itself. Uh, it tends to be a tax that uh, where no politicians ha have their fingerprints on it right away. It tends to be somewhat more slowly moving. Uh, it becomes convenient to, to pay off old debts, uh, but uh, it, it can sneak up on you over time. I alluded in my introduction to you about your editorial in the Wall Street Journal, and which was titled, Does the Fed Have the Will to Fight Inflation? Um, and what's your answer to that? Well, I think it's, it's going to be much harder for the Fed uh, to fight inflation in this uh, cycle that's coming up than it has been in the past. That's partly because there's been a financialization of the economy, which is to say that uh, the, the value of financial assets is much greater as a percentage of GDP than it's ever been before. So if you have Fed tightens and asset prices go down, that hurts more people than it, it has in the past. And stock ownership, right, is, is much broader. Is, stock than... ownership is, is much broader, which is a good yeah. thing. It's made people wealthier, but it also makes them much more sensitive to changes uh, in interest rates. I'd also say that the, the bigger that the federal debt gets, uh, obviously, the more interest expense the, the Treasury has to pay, and the higher the interest rates are, the more interest expense uh, that must be borne. So there's, there's a chance that if you, if you raise rates too quickly or, or rates move up, the interest expense uh, on the debt will just explode. You had a, a really interesting, some stats in one of your reports. I'm trying to remember, what is it, 50, more than 50% of the Treasury maturities are, is it under right. three years? That's right. So more, uh, a little more than 50% of all yeah. the outstanding debt in the United States matures within the next three years. The average cost of uh, Treasury debt outstanding is less than 1.4%. So that's what that's the interest that the Treasury is paying now on all of our debt. The average, the wow, average, right? Really so it, low. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's 28 trillion dollars in debt total, 22 trillion dollars in debt um, outstanding. Every one percent increase in in the interest rates is 220 billion dollars a year. So uh, even if rates just go back to kind of where inflation is, uh, that could be a very meaningful. Uh, change in terms of the budget, the costs uh, to the federal government um, of the debt. And then finally, I, I would say that another reason why it's, it's going to be more difficult for the Fed to fight inflation in the future is that they're being tasked with a lot of things uh, in addition to price stability and full employment that they have not been tasked with before. Things like climate change and social justice, uh, which of course are all noble goals, but I, I feel I'm very skeptical that the central bank has any real ability to change those things in any meaningful way. Uh, it makes the Fed more politically um, open uh, to attack uh, if it has to raise rates. And so it's, it's really for all those reasons, the financialization, the size of our debt, and, and the low interest cost on our debt, as well as the new political considerations they have, that'll make it much harder for the Fed, in my opinion, to, to fight inflation when we have it. Um, I thought the Fed was supposed to be independent. 
So why, it, why were, were, are they more subject to political pressures now than they have been in the past? I, I think the answer is that it, this largely started, in my opinion, in 2008, when we started with what was then considered unconventional monetary policy or quantitative easing, which is right. just largely the idea that the Fed would purchase a lot of securities to, to purposely keep interest rates low. Uh, that was seen as really out of bounds uh, before the 2008 financial crisis. Now, unfortunately, it's become quite conventional. It's not unconventional anymore. And it, it puts the Fed, as Jim Grant would say, in the position of both being pyromaniac and firefighter, uh, because it, it tends to increase the prices of financial assets, um, and it makes the hangover from uh, a decline in those financial assets very severe, which then forces the Fed to have to act more on the other side. So it's a, it's a very difficult, it's a little bit like quicksand. Uh, the more you interfere, in my opinion, in the markets, uh, the more difficult it is uh, to get back to neutral, to get back to a, a position in which you're just trying to call balls and strikes and just trying to uh, focus on price stability. Now, now you have a lot of other political constituencies uh, to worry about. What are you telling clients that the potential impact on the markets are? And also, how do you navigate this uh, as an investor? Well, I think uh, in the short to intermediate term, it, it's very difficult uh, to get particularly bearish on financial assets simply because the Fed is still easing. And so right. I don't want people to kind of listen to all this and, and um and panic. Uh, so, uh, and the Fed is going to telegraph its moves to tighten uh, very clearly. Um, you'll you'll have time. Having said that, I do think um, that if if you believe, as I do, that long-term interest rates are likely to head higher as a result of higher inflation, that changes the sector allocation that that you need. I think it, it presents a headwind. Uh, for technology stocks, particularly technology stocks that, that don't have a lot in the way of earnings, um, that where the value is largely tied up in the terminal value of the company, that's a problem. It does present an opportunity also, though, for sectors that will benefit from uh, a weaker dollar and higher inflation, like energy and, and basic materials. So in my opinion, this will require a much more active approach to managing Money. I think the kind of the, the set it and forget it, the very passive approach to investing money is going to be harder just given the sector weights within the, the market. You have technology that's about 28% of the S&P 500. Uh, energy is only 3%. And so in, in my opinion, um, those um, technology is likely to come down some and, and energy is likely to go up some. And, and explain when you're talking about technology because, because of course, if any of us are in S&P 500 index funds or any market index fund, uh, you know, the exposure that we have to technology is really through the fangs. Those stocks are, are companies with real cash flows. And right. so they're mm -hmm. not as exposed okay. uh, to higher long-term interest rates. Uh, they are exposed, but they're not as exposed. As I would say, there are a lot of- In so, the S&P 500 or in like, no, I know it, the NASDAQ 3000? In the NASDAQ 3000. There, right, there's exactly. Not, there's 30 not percent, as, right? Don't right, make money in the NASDAQ 3000. That's right. right so, so those companies, I think, are particularly vulnerable because uh, they're, they're, again, you're, you're, um, there are no cash flows to discount in the short term. So the movements and the long-term interest rates make almost the entire difference in terms of um, whether the stock makes sense or not. 
And so right now, when you have free money, a lot of things make sense. You can take risks that you ordinarily wouldn't. Uh, if if long-term interest rates rise, that changes really everything uh, in terms of the way money is managed, um, what the expected returns are going to be, um, how active you should be. Because this year is the 40th anniversary um, of you know the 40 years of declining interest rates since 1981. I referred to Paul Volcker before. And you know, interest rates peaked, long-term interest rates in 1981, right? So 40 years later, we've had 40 years of declining interest rates. That sounds like that's about to change. Is that right or is changing? I think it is, it is going to change. It's not, right. not, not necessarily going to change overnight. It took 40 years to get here. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's true. September, I think it was September 30th, 1981. Uh, 10-year Treasury yields, I believe, were just shy of 16%. And, and today they're about 1.5%. So that's <laughs> pretty, pretty remarkable change. Uh, but we, we're certainly doing, it seems like we're doing everything in our power to get interest rates higher. Um, they're, they're not moving as high as a lot of people uh, have suspected, myself included. Uh, but I also think that there, as a result, there's a fair amount of risk uh, given the amount of, again, monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're, we're bringing to bear in the economy. And, and just the fact that Inflation is significantly higher than the rate people are getting on fixed income. So people are getting negative real rates. They buy a bond. Inflation just was recently uh, reported at 5.4 percent. If right. you're getting one and a half percent, you're not really being compensated for uh, the risk that you're taking. So there are risks then in the bond market, which people have been warning about incorrectly. For, <laughs> like, forever. You know, forever. Yeah. Because everyone kept saying, no, 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 interest rates couldn't possibly go any lower. And they kept going lower. You know, now we're at 4,000 year lows, supposedly. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> um, so the 40-year the long rally in bonds is probably, has probably bottomed, is probably over. And, um, and so if there's going to be a, a major change in the fixed income markets as well. So we're not only seeing you know, impact in the stock market and justifying some changes, but also in the fixed income markets. I think so. I think you want yeah. to be in, in much uh, there again. You want to be in shorter duration fixed income rather than longer duration uh, fixed income because of inflation. Now, again, we're, we're doing so much meddling in the financial markets. It's not right. beyond the realm of possibility that, and this, is ha this happened during World War II, uh, where the Fed and the Treasury conspire to keep interest rates low, regardless of what inflation is. That's called yield curve control. That is possible, uh, but it's, it, it's really, it's good for the government. It's not particularly good for savers or investors because you're, you're losing money again in real terms. Inflation is running much higher than uh, than what you're getting uh, in uh, in yield. You, you've written about um, some other changes, and and you know, one of the things that's and you mentioned energy and materials before, which are have been uh, you know real tremendous laggards over the last decade, um, and now energy the energy sector is year to date has been the best performing you know S and P. 500 sector and materials have done really well in addition to that. And as, as we transition from traditional fossil fuels to clean energy, we're kind of finding out now that it's, it's going to cause a lot of disruptions. One of the great ironies here uh, is that uh, just looking at the last two administrations, President Trump really kind of loved the fossil fuel industry 
and yet it wasn't good for the stocks because the because um, the cost of capital was very low. You had a lot of energy companies that were just punching holes in the ground um, and they burned a lot of capital. The Biden administration, let's just say, is not a fan of the energy industry and yet the stocks are doing terrifically well because there are regulations on drilling. And uh, it's, not good for the, it's not good for the workers in, in energy companies particularly, but it's, it's, uh, and it's not good for consumers of energy. Uh, but it's very good for the stocks, and it's, in my opinion, it's causing oil prices to rise. Um, I'd also say that the, the movement towards green energy or electric vehicles in particular is extremely dependent upon commodities. Uh, if you look at what makes up an electric vehicle, uh, it's based on a lot of metals, a lot of commodities that you have to dig up out of the ground, um, which makes one wonder how green they really are, but by the same right. token, um, they, uh, it is driving up the cost of a lot of, uh, a lot of industrial metals in particular uh, to build electric vehicles. And so if one thinks that's going to be a big part of the future, as I do, um, one way to play that actually is, is through commodity prices. Another issue that you've written about, uh, Jason, in your very thoughtful reports as a financial thought leader is China. And uh, you and I talked several weeks ago about the fact that you know, you had gotten some questions about, um, is China in investable? Listen, I think, I think the pandemic greatly damaged China's brand um, as a global player. And, and I think, um, again, perhaps going back to President Trump's view of China, which was largely seen as outside the mainstream five years ago, is much more mainstream today, maybe not in style, uh, but uh, certainly in terms of just the, the concept that China's not necessarily an economic partner, but is at right. best a rival uh, and at worst uh, an enemy. And so in my opinion, that's what's leading to this, this questioning of, of China being investable. Uh, also, I would have to say another thing that's leading to that is that the returns from China have not been particularly good. And, and after, you know, I, I tend to think, unfortunately, virtue tends to follow performance. And people, once the, once, the, once the performance isn't so good, then people start saying, well, gee, you know, they don't have a particularly great record on human rights and, and they're, they're not particularly respectful uh, of property rights and, and what do I really own? And people, people tend to buy things that are going up uh, and then tend to do their homework later on. But I, I think that's what's leading to this reevaluation of China. It also questions globalization and the fact that, you know, so much of our manufacturing was outsourced to China. And now we're seeing, um, you know, onshoring where countries, not just the U.S., are bringing, you know, their manufacturing capabilities back home or certainly to other countries. Globalization has been a, a deflationary uh, force. And so that's another big change too, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think China, yeah. since China joined the WTO, I mean, the, the, the good news World for Trade Organization. the World Trade mm -hmm. Organization, since China joined the World Trade Organization, the good news is that American consumers could buy all sorts of consumer goods at, at very, very cheap prices. Um, the bad news is that um, I, I think we're realizing is that it hollowed out uh, a fair amount of U.S. manufacturing more quickly probably then it would have been hollowed out anyway. I, I'm not saying all of those jobs would have been able to have been kept, but the fact that China manipulated its currency um, and it was such a large player meant that it, it's had a very big impact on the country 
Globalization is one of the greatest sources, that and technology, of, of deflation, of disinflation. And I think now, clearly, uh, that's going to be, uh, globalization is going to be less of a force for disinflation moving forward. It's another reason to, to worry a little bit more about uh, higher rates. You've been willing in the past to share what you're doing with your personal portfolio. So, you know, how are you investing uh, as, as, again, as these major changes occur, albeit, you know, possibly very slowly? Right. And uh, um, so I'll, I'll give you three ideas, two, two of which I'm invested in and one of which I, I'm not, but, but would mm -hmm. suggest. Uh, one is a, a company called Albemarle, uh, symbol is ALB. Uh, it's a specialty chemicals uh, producer, but it, it really focuses on lithium, on producing lithium. Lithium is a major input, obviously, in batteries and, and is a major input uh, in the batteries of electric vehicles. So this is uh, perhaps a, a backdoor way of playing the move towards green energy and, and electric vehicles. Um, I would say it's, the stock is not cheap, it's somewhat risky. Uh, but if one thinks that's the uh, that's the way things are going, it it could be a very very attractive play. So that's one that I'm invested in. Another one uh, that I'm another stock or an ETF that I'm invested in is XLE, uh, which is simply the uh, select energy uh, sector. It's a it's a broad survey of of U.S. large uh, energy companies. Um, I think that's a good way to have exposure uh, to to the sector. Um, the other one, uh, the other ETF that I'm not invested in, but could give people some interest, or it might be of some interest if they want to play commodities maybe more broadly, mm -hmm. uh, is COMT, uh, and that's an ETF uh, that is designed to track uh, the uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, oh, uh, mm -hmm. and it's going to track really a, a large uh, survey of, of commodities. And um, obviously, he's done quite well this year. But that, if people want to have a, a, maybe a broader approach to, to playing commodity prices in general, that could be an interesting play. This goes with the idea that it, it's quite likely that most of your viewers and, and all of us really are, are already quite exposed to high growth technology companies. Right. Um, so we, we already have a, a very good exposure uh, to those companies. Um, and. I, it seems to me you want to look for places that are a little bit less owned, a little bit less, um, uh, a, little, a little bit uh, less interesting to people. Uh, there could be a chance for for outsized returns in that regard. Do you have a one investment recommendation for us that we all should own in a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, I I like Albemarle. I, I I you know, and again, I, I will say though that it's not it's not a cheap stock. So I mm -hmm. I, I want to um, so mo most of the time I think when I'm on I, I tend to give things that are uh, a little bit more reasonably priced. Uh, but um, for me, it's a long-term holding. And uh, for those who might might want to take a little bit more risk, it's a it's a very interesting. I think it's a very interesting play on the move towards electric vehicles. And I, I have a feeling, you know, inflation has not been a political issue for 40 years. Uh, it will be, I, right, if the, if the midterm elections were held in three weeks, uh, it, it would be a major political issue. Uh, and for the first time, if you look at the Gallup poll, for the first time, uh, consumers are saying they're more concerned about inflation than they are about employment. Wow. Uh, so, or it's been 40 years since they've been more concerned about inflation than they have been about employment. So this is something I don't think that's going away. I, I think this is, uh, we're, we're in the early innings 
of debating some of these things and the various trade-offs that, that uh, we have to face uh, to get a, a cleaner planet. Uh, and um, we'll see. We'll definitely see. Jason Trenard, always a treat to have you on WealthTrack and sharing your, your thoughts and insights and some unconventional wisdom as well. Thanks so much, Jason. It's my great privilege. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is to own some hedges against inflation in case it does turn out to be more than transitory. Trenet mentioned XLE, which is the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF. The fund rated five star by Morningstar was launched in 1998. It tracks the energy sector of the S&P 500, which includes stocks such as ExxonMobil and Chevron, which dominate the fund because of their massive market capitalizations. But it includes around 20 other oil, gas, and oil service companies as well. Recent guest, financial historian and analyst James Grant, editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, recommended a new ETF, the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, with the app symbol INFL. Too new to have a rating, it's an actively managed ETF seeking long-term growth of capital in real inflation-adjusted terms. It invests in domestic and foreign stocks that are expected to benefit from rising prices of real assets, physical properties like commodities. Energy and other commodity stocks are not popular because of years of poor performance and socially responsible investing concerns, which means your exposure is probably minimal. But these industries are essential for all sorts of reasons, and they provide inflation diversification. Well, next week, a new world order of market leadership. Michael Cass, portfolio manager of Barron Emerging Markets Fund, will make the case for this long underperforming asset class. This week in our extra feature with Jason Trenert, why he takes to the streets to find out what's really going on in the economy. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Thank you.